Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is your host, Abby Martin. This is the audio of our show. You can watch the episodes on our YouTube channel or at theempirefiles.tv. Welcome to the Empire Files. I'm your host, Abby Martin. We started this show in 2015, and since then we've maintained the premise that the U.S. empire is not only a huge expanse, but is constantly expanding. Contrary to those who say the U.S. empire is in decline, the war machine has been on a continuous march forward to swallow up new regions and markets, no matter the president. Two years into Donald Trump's reign as CEO of the empire, we wanted to see if that trajectory has continued. At the beginning, I admit I thought Trump was a wild card. I considered the fact that Trump is an extreme narcissist that only cares about himself, not his fellow billionaires. I also considered there might be a reason why none of the CEOs of the top 100 corporations in the nation backed Trump for president. And true to the dizzying effects of having Donald Trump as president, anything was possible. He could go against the grain and start belligerent major new wars. He could capitulate and be a loyal servant as long as they made him look good. Or he could buck the establishment bourgeoisie and pander to a sector of right-wing isolationists and anti-interventionists who support refocusing U.S. wars on the border against immigrants rather than waste resources for so-called nation-building abroad. After all, Trump did posture himself as the anti-intervention candidate in the 2016 election. Unlike other candidates for the presidency, war and aggression will not be my first instinct. The vote for Hillary is a vote for more reckless foreign invasions. Obviously, the war in Iraq was a big, fat mistake. We must abandon the failed policy of nation-building and regime change that Hillary Clinton pushed in Iraq, in Libya, in Egypt, and in Syria. It was a strategy that made sense. Polling shows an overwhelming majority of Americans oppose military intervention abroad. The past 17 years of military disasters has tainted any national candidate who advocates more war. Right-wing online forums were ablaze with theories that Trump was an isolationist who would fight the deep state on wasteful wars. But it was obvious to anyone watching that he was talking out of both sides of his mouth. Trump also campaigned on war, most notably threatening a major war with Iran, which would make the Iraq war look like child's play. With Iran, when they circle our beautiful destroyers with their little boats and they make gestures at our people that they shouldn't be allowed to make, they will be shot out of the water. Okay, believe me. Not only that, but one of his main campaign promises was a major escalation of war and brutality in the Middle East. I will knock the hell out of ISIS. We have to knock the hell out of them. I'm going to bomb the shit out of them. It's true. I don't care. I don't care. I would bomb the hell out of ISIS. We're already bombing ISIS. What would you do differently? I would increase the frequency like you wouldn't believe. We're going to win. We're going to win fast. Great. More violence. His threats exceeded carpet bombing, though. He even evoked the genocide of Muslims in the Philippines as a model, and the legend that General Pershing executed civilians with bullets dipped in pig's blood and buried their bodies with pig carcasses. Uh, There's a problem that has gone on. General Pershing had the problem in 1919 in the Philippines with radical Islamic terrorism. 
and he handled it a certain way. I think you probably know that story. It's a very gruesome story. But you know what? The problem didn't exist for 48 years after that happened. He essentially campaigned on a massive expansion of the bogus war on terror. Far from isolationist, Trump presented himself as more of a heartless warmonger who thought human rights were a barrier that needed to be smashed, that the violence of the war machine was too soft, too restrained. They asked me, what do you think about waterboarding, Mr. Trump? I said, I love it. I love it. I think it's great. The only thing is we should make it much tougher than waterboarding. Right now, basically, waterboarding is essentially not allowed, as I understand it. And you'd like it to be if you could expand I would that. certainly like it to be at a minimum. As president, you would authorize torture? I would absolutely authorize something beyond waterboarding. We have to beat the savages. And therefore throw all rules out. We have to beat the savages. By being savages. No, we, well, look, you have to play the game the way they're playing the game. George, you have our enemy cutting heads off of Christians and plenty of others by the hundreds, so by the thousands. Do we win by being more like them? Yes. When I was a young man, I studied medieval times. That's what they did. They chopped off heads. So we're going to chop what off we heads? Have, perhaps, if that happens to come. Candidate Trump didn't just lament the restraint on American war crimes around the world, but also the financial restraints on the military machine. Somehow, Trump argued that the country with the biggest military budget in the history of the world was actually too small. I am the most military-based and the most militaristic person on your show. I want to have a much stronger military. We currently have the smallest army since 1940. I will rebuild our military. It will be so strong and so powerful and so great. Candidate Trump has turned out to be a pretty good predictor of a President Trump. And it should have been clear to everyone what kind of president he would be when he hand-picked his cabinet, stacking it with the craziest neocon outliers. Ones too insane even for the Bush administration. And more generals than any cabinet since World War II, who are literal war criminals. He even bragged about giving the Pentagon maximum power to act, free from annoying checks and balances. And true to his word, he also shattered all records for our already obscene military budget. Before Trump came in, it was already larger than all of these countries combined. But apparently that wasn't enough. So within his first year, Trump kicked in the biggest defense budget in history, close to $1 trillion. My first budget will be submitted to the Congress next month. And it will include a historic increase in defense spending to rebuild the depleted military of the United States of America at a time we must the increase in military spending alone equates to more than Russia's entire annual military budget. The new $750 billion war toy chest includes another $705 million for Israel, $100 million to deter Russian aggression in the Baltics, and another $500 million to arm Ukraine, equipment that seems to keep getting in the hands of neo-Nazi militias. But the most interesting part of this budget is the spending increase for what's called overseas contingency operations, which includes maintaining troop deployments in U.S. bases, as well as new and expanding outposts. Since 2011, the spending has been capped by a federal statute, but Trump blew the caps off by $80 billion. This could not have happened without Congress or the full endorsement of the Democratic Party establishment. There is a bipartisan consensus in Washington to maintain the U.S. empire along with its 800 military bases. 
And it's not just gifting the military-industrial complex with an open faucet of taxpayer dollars, but using US dominance to get them huge weapons contracts with foreign proxies. Obama oversaw some of the biggest arms deals in US history, selling more than 115 billion in weapons to Saudi Arabia alone, the most of any US administration. But Trump has taken the role of CEO of the US empire to new heights, becoming the de facto arms salesman in chief. The United States makes by far the best military equipment in the world, the best jets, the best missiles, the best guns. I'm proud to report that Poland has recently purchased a state-of-the-art Patriot missile system. And we're exploring ways to expedite the sale of American military equipment to Japan. I went to Saudi Arabia on the basis that they would buy hundreds of billions, many billions of dollars worth of things. Japan just gave us some numbers that are incredible. They're doubling the amount that they are going to be buying. I said, you have to do me a favor. We don't want these big deficits. You're going to have to buy more. But I really learned since being president, our equipment is so much better than anybody else's equipment. When you look at our companies, Lockheed and Boeing and Grumman, there's great talent around this beautiful room. And thank you all for being here. Between the head of Boeing and the head of Lockheed and the head of Raytheon and the head of everything else, we have them all. <laughs> we have them all around. So thank you all for being here. That's an honor. Particular country ordered. You'll never guess who this is. About $110 billion worth of equipment. And I assume you'd like to keep those orders, probably. <laughs> yes, sir. Trump made it a priority to lift Obama-era restrictions on selling weapons to countries committing human rights abuses, like Bahrain. U.S. diplomats were also instructed to become literal conduits for weapons manufacturers and push arms sales as part of their jobs. In Trump's first year, the State Department approved more than $75 billion in overseas weapons sales, topping the previous record of $68 billion in 2012. It's only ramped up since. In the first six months of 2018, the DOD brokered weapons deals to foreign proxies alone worth $46 billion more than the $41 billion worth of deals made during all of 2017. By pumping obscene amounts of cash into the war machine while gleefully endorsing bombing and torture, Trump makes it clear to his friends that business will be booming for a long time. Richard Abalafia of the military think tank Teal Group said of the policy shift, diplomacy is out, airstrikes are in. In this sort of environment, it's tough to keep a lid on costs. It's paid off for America's five biggest defense contractors, whose stocks have more than tripled in the last couple of years. We're told it costs too much to have Medicare for all. Yet money was no object when he ordered the DOD to establish a space force as a sixth branch of the military, projected to cost at least $13 billion in the first five years. But our destiny beyond the Earth is not only a matter of national identity, but a matter of national security, so important for our military. Just like the air, the land, the sea, space has become a warfighting domain. It is not enough to merely have an American presence in space. We must have American dominance in space. And so we will. The idea to militarize space was first proposed by the Bush administration in their PNAC blueprint for the war on terror. Trump is just another neocon puppet, eager to fulfill their stormtrooper fantasy. Not to mention the fact that alongside passing this record military budget, it was paid for with budget cuts to society's most vulnerable, in particular, 
hungry children. But Trump isn't just making sure kids in the United States go hungry, but children in every country deemed our enemies. Because the US dollar drives the global economy, the empire frequently wields sanctions to bend countries to its will. Anyone claiming to be anti-war or even just anti-intervention must oppose any and all economic sanctions. Make no mistake, sanctions are war, and not in a hyperbolic sense. They are real attacks that kill real people. The impact of sanctions is never discussed in the US media. They're always treated as a kind of soft solution with the assumption that they only affect society's corrupt elites. These are assumptions nowhere close to reality. Sanctions hurt the most vulnerable, and by design, that's why they intentionally target medicine, clean water, and access to food. The logic of sanctions is, if you kill and starve enough innocent civilians, they'll blame their own government and rise up and overthrow them so American forces don't have to waste any blood doing so. Their genocidal impact cannot be overstated. Looking at Iraq alone, US sanctions in the 90s that blockaded medicine from the country killed 500,000 Iraqi babies. That's the true face of sanctions. They're not an alternative to war. Sanctions are war in every way. So what has Trump done with the daggers of US sanctions? He's shown the true face of his foreign policy. Obama implemented hundreds of sanctions during his tenure, but Trump is ramping them up in nearly every region, adding hundreds more in just his first two years. The most destructive application of sanctions has been in Iran, where Trump upended Obama's historic nuclear deal and added 143 sanctions that have since debilitated their economy. Then there's North Korea, where people give Trump credit for peace between the North and South. Amazingly, despite the media's rhetoric of Trump bowing down to dictators, he has installed 80 new sanctions on the DPRK, compared to the 74 applied by Obama. In Syria, Trump has authorized a stunning 287 new sanctions. That's almost double the amount applied under Obama. He's administered 43 new sanctions on Libya so far. In Russia and Ukraine, Trump has defied the notion he's a Putin puppet by sanctioning the region 105 times so far, for everything from annexing Crimea, to the alleged meddling in the 2016 election, to the attempted poisoning of Sergei Skripal. Not to mention the 43 cyber sanctions put on the figures alleged to have hacked in the DNC. Next is Venezuela. Even though Obama added seven sanctions during his term, Trump's laser focus is set on destroying the country once and for all. He's already employed 63 new sanctions to strangle Venezuela and undermine any chance for economic recovery. He's imposed many more sanctions on independent, progressive countries like Cuba and Nicaragua. What do all these countries have in common? It's not some standard of democracy or human rights. It's that they all are independent of US domination. They chart their own path and decide what's done with the wealth of their own country. The biggest thing they have in common is that none of them pose any threat to us. It would be bad enough if the Trump administration was only expanding economic warfare on these countries, but they're taking it much further. Any corner of the globe we look to, we see that he is indeed expanding the US empire's influence and operations. He has ratcheted up with new fire and veracity, covert and overt regime change operations, expansion of military bases, massive increases in bombings and civilian casualties, and belligerent escalations that put us on the brink of catastrophic war on multiple fronts. 
As we'll show in this multi-part series, Trump Expanding the Empire, that whether or not Trump pisses off, offends, or even destabilizes powerful sectors of the imperialist state, he has only put war and militarism on the march. It may be confusing how Trump is still making proclamations about stopping endless wars, but we have to look at his actions, not his rhetoric. And yes, there is growing opposition to Trump within the halls of power, but not because they think Trump is gonna rein back the empire, because he's simply self-absorbed and unpredictable. With all the praise about the most diverse Congress in history, you can't seem to find any diversity in opinion when it comes to continuing US imperialism. Both parties are war parties, but individuals also play an important role in history. And Trump, far from an anti-interventionist, represents a unique threat to the lives of millions of people abroad and here at home. We can't let the Democrats steer the resistance away from where it needs to be, in the streets, linking our struggles, fighting the expansive U.S. empire. Thank you for listening to our Empire Files podcast. Help keep us independent and ad-free at patreon.com slash empirefiles. And be sure to catch our newest episodes by subscribing to our YouTube channel.